Thanks for joining me today for episode 14 of the Northwest Fish Passage podcast. Northwest Fish Passage is a small strategic collaborative partnership of scientists, planners, and engineers. Today I'm here with three people involved in the Cold Water Connection campaign. Mara Zim Zimmerman, Executive Director for Coast Salmon Partnership and Foundation. Luke Kelly, Olympic Peninsula Restoration Project Manager at Trout Unlimited and Jess Helsley, Wild Salmon Center, Washington Program Director. They're working together to prioritize the removal of barriers on the Western Olympic Peninsula and to reconnect 75 miles of blocked habitat over the next 10 years. I'm so excited and grateful to have you all on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thanks and for having us, Annika. Yeah, um, so to start with, uh, Jess, can you tell me about the what is the cold water connection, the history, and your role in that? Yeah, so the cold water connection campaign really originated from a discussion concerning how we prioritize our restoration actions on the Olympic Peninsula. My work on the OP started as a project sponsor and when I asked myself if the region's restoration actions were providing the most benefit to the fish, I often found it really difficult to kind of answer that question. So, you know, despite that, the fact that the Olympic Peninsula still has a tremendous amount of high quality salmon habitat, uh, collectively, uh, we've known that a majority of that habitat was not currently accessible to the fish that needed it. We also knew that we needed to provide access to that cold, clean water as soon as possible so that these fish had an opportunity to become more resilient to the, the climate changes that we're facing. So once I was in a new position and kind of afforded the opportunity to take a more geographic look across uh, the work that was going on on the OP, a group of us got together and decided to develop a way to quantify and then prioritize restoration actions. And applying that to fish passage barriers was kind of the most logical place to start. I, I think I can speak for all of us in saying that we believe that the Olympic Peninsula is one of our last best chances to get salmon conservation right. But we struggle to compete for restoration funding due to the lack of listed populations out there. So this tool uh, would really help us to show funders that investing in restoration on the OP would show immediate benefit uh, and, you know, allow these fish to finally return to their protected cold water home habitat that they so desperately need. Hey, thank you so much. Mara, could you tell me a little about your role in cold water connection campaign? Sure. Um, I, I was going to start maybe a little bit more broadly with the Coast Salmon Partnership. I think it kind of puts some context to it. Um, it uh, Coast Salmon Partnership, one of seven salmon recovery organizations in Washington state, um, focused on the health of salmon and steelhead in all of the waterways that empty into the Pacific Ocean on Washington's outer coast, and that includes the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and our, our focus has really been on rebuilding sustainable salmon populations and preventing listings under the Endangered Species Act. And so 
It's really set us apart from much of the state where salmon and steelhead numbers are so low that the populations are being protected by the federal listings and the challenges to rebuilding the populations are, are far greater. So in that way, we're, we are in a good spot to really make a difference uh, for these populations. Our organization does rely heavily on partnerships with, with people and organizations. Um, so like our board includes representation from tribes and counties and cities and citizens throughout the geographic area. Um, we also benefit greatly from partnerships with non-governmental organizations. Um, and that's what you see here today is a partnership with Wild Salmon Center and Trout Unlimited, um, both of whom are heavily invested in the future of the, the salmon and steelhead on the Washington coast, uh, outer coast. The Cold Water Connection Campaign there is like perfect example of, of this kind of partnership. Because my organization has that sort of broad regional representation, I've played sort of a connector or oversight role in the cold water connection campaign. I kind of make sure that all the pieces are coming together, whether, the, whether we're talking about funding or strategic direction or field training or getting projects going on the ground. I'm really fortunate um, to work with both Wild Salmon Center and, and Trout Unlimited, as well as many other uh, organizations, including the uh, tribes on the Western Olympic Peninsula um, that are really making this campaign a success. Thank you. Uh, that's great. I'm really excited about the this campaign. So Luke, uh, can you tell me a little about Trout Unlimited and then your background with fish passage projects and your role in cold water connection? Sure, sure, Annika, thank you. Um, Trout Unlimited is um, a relatively large nonprofit organization. It started in the late 1950s in Michigan. Um, it was started by a group of concerned anglers that saw their local fishery being degraded um, by habitat and then, you know, probably some fisheries management issues it, since 1959. And we're generally coast to coast focused on cold water fisheries and maintaining the habitats that those species rely upon. Um, although we have Trout Unlimited in our name, we do a lot of investment and work in salmon and steelhead watersheds as we're talking about the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, for me, I'm primarily a project manager, so I'm a project sponsor that's looking to correct things like these fish barriers or other in-stream habitat projects. That also, in order to get to that point, I do a lot of other work in terms of evaluation and um, assessing particular barrier sites or culverts to see if they are a barrier and how much of a barrier they are. And then as a project sponsor, naturally, there's a lot of collaboration with other partners, including those on the call in the podcast today, uh, but also the tribes, agencies, and other NGOs. Um, it's that leveraging of partnerships that really helps develop the projects with the other implementers, but also funders. And once a project, we have a barrier evaluated and we have a project developed with partners, um, then we get to the real fun parts, um, at least as a project manager from my perspective, or we can get the work done on the ground to correct those barriers and reconnect the habitat. So you have all mentioned about the importance of partners on this project. Jess, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's, it's imperative to start by recognizing that it was tribes in Washington state that brought everyone's attention to the true impacts that barriers were having on our fish populations. And 
really um, kind of forced us down the road that we're on at, at trying to address the, the sheer quantity of barriers that are there to, to allow these fish to get back home. It, you know, if we look throughout history, at, at what one point in time, there were over 4,000 documented fish passage barriers on the Olympic Peninsula alone. And, you know, through strategic partnerships, thankfully, many of those barriers have been replaced with fish-friendly structures. Um, but we still have a tremendous amount of barriers across the landscape. And, you know, both restoration practitioners like ourselves, you know, as well as the, the legislature really need to prioritize funding to, to get the rest of these barriers removed from the landscape. But partnership is absolutely critical to achieve the campaign's goals and to, uh, you know, achieve salmon and steelhead conservation uh, throughout the state in general. But our, you know, one example is our tribal partners actually are the ones that hold tremendous data sets on water quality. And uh, without that, the cold water component of the cold water connection campaign would really be quite meager. It would be non-existent. Um, additionally, implementation of these projects is more than a couple of organizations can take on alone. Uh, you know, uh, every summer, uh, Luke is his schedule is is full up with restoration projects. Uh, my counterpart on the Olympic Peninsula with Wild Salmon Center, Betsy Creer. Her restoration portfolio is full up. And so we really kind of wanted to, to spread out that, not only that workload, but that job creation opportunity to multiple organizations across the peninsula. And, you know, without bringing on board those additional project sponsors, the timeline of the campaign and our ability to achieve these goals would be tremendously elongated. It just, it would be really hard to, to kind of conceptualize how long it would take if it was just a couple of organizations chipping away at a couple of barriers every year or every other year. Thank you. Mara, can you tell me a little bit about how you prioritize the barriers? Yeah, great question. It's an important question, right? Because we have limited people and limited funding to work with. <laughs> and so we wanted to make sure that projects happened in places that would truly make a difference for the salmon and steelhead populations. One of the challenges with barriers is that you really need to work across jurisdictions if you want to make an impact. So this, the streams flow through road crossings that are they're owned by some, a combination of private, city, county, state, federal ownerships. And so the first step in doing the prioritization piece was getting groups together from these that represented these different ownerships and, and sort of setting up a forum where we could have uh, communication and decision making and we were truly thinking across the landscape and we had the right people in, involved in that in that discussion. Um, we're doing the prioritization in, in two phases. Um, as Jess mentioned, when we simply looked at the database, we were looking at more than 4,000 records of potential uh, fish passage barriers. That's an overwhelming number, certainly not something that could be addressed by going out in the field and looking at all of them. So we needed to whittle it down to a manageable number of barriers. And that was the first part of our, our prioritization. 
Um, so at first we whittled it down to just over uh, 500 culvert fish barriers using a geographic information systems a data set or GIS um, information that was available on fish distributions. Um, there was no way that we could have done this with a field effort. I mean, just way too many sites. Um, so kind of using this modeling approach was really important for the first look. Um, we took those 500 fish barriers and looked at information like how much habitat is upstream, what's the quality of the upstream habitat, how many species does it support, how connected is the stream network? Are there a lot of barriers within the stream network? Are there just a few barriers in the stream network? And then we added in uh, climate information. Um, as, as Jess mentioned, this is a cold water connection campaign. We're trying to specifically reconnect access to cold water in, in anticipation for of the changing conditions, particularly summer stream conditions. Um, so we took the stream temperature information that was available and that factored into the modeling prioritization as, as well. From this, we got sort of a list of top tier of culvert fish barriers that we could focus uh, field efforts. Um, and that led us to the second phase, which has been to verify these fish barriers in the field and really identify which ones are going to make solid projects that are going to be good candidates for, for competitive grant funding. Um, so we wanted to know in the field work, you know, is the barrier as severe as the, the database says that it, it is? Um, is the habitat condition good? For, uh, is there good spawning and rearing habitat in the stream? Or is there something that we can't see with our model that we do see in the field that would say there's a lot of things going on in the stream in addition to the, the fish barrier itself? Are the landowners interested and willing to support that culvert replacement? Because ultimately the work that we're doing affects them uh, as well. And so this ground truthing is a really important part of the prioritization process because it kind of brings it down to what's going to be really possible. Um, and so that is, that's been our approach uh, so far. So how many are in the top tier that you mentioned? Yeah, so we're trying to really nail our kind of focus in on um, about 50 culvert fish barriers um, that we can be that can be addressed over the next 10 year time frame. Um, that being something that is we see as doable, given the capacity that we have uh, with people, um, and then also given the uh, different funding sources that we are possible to, to tap into to support the work. Are some of these in proximity to washdot culverts? Yep. And so that's been the other really great thing um, where we've been able to talk about and look at and see where multiple culverts in the same stream network, if uh, addressed at the same time, if, if those fish barriers are addressed at the same time, will really make a difference because you can... Um, we know which of the washdot culverts currently are on the list of, of being planned to be uh, fixed um, as a result of that federal court injunction um, that, that Jess was talking about uh, previously. And then we can see where the additional fish barriers that are not on state-owned roads um, are connected to the planned work on the, on the state-owned roads. That's great. So I actually just found out yesterday that I'll be working on a dozen um, barriers on the Olympic Peninsula and doing geomorphic evaluations. Great place to work. Luke, can you tell me about some of the challenges and successes working on the ground on these projects? 
Sure. Before we can really get to work on the ground, you know, we talked about the prioritization effort, and I don't want to repeat what's already been said, but really understanding across the landscape what barriers exist where has been a challenge, and we've made huge progress. So really data gaps, you know, going out and evaluating barriers that are kind of in that top tier to see the severity of the barrier at the actual site, but then also confirm the quality of habitat that would be um, accessible if it was corrected. So data gaps is always one that we'll be working toward closing as we find them. There's also, uh, as Mara mentioned, landowner willingness is a really important one. You know, there's barriers on all kinds of land ownership, as we've mentioned. And if the landowner is not wanting to work on a barrier or not willing to allow access to do some of the field verification, that's a pretty major roadblock. Um, luckily, with the partnerships that we have and um, the work group that is moving forward, I think that there's some some real respect and also um, some willingness has increased, I think, to work together to correct these barriers. Once we do have um, these top tier barriers ranked or prioritized, if you will, and getting on the ground, there's definitely more challenges. Every site is unique, even though a particular site could look very similar to another site in terms of the the size of the barrier culvert, if it's culvert, and maybe the road is uh, are both county roads, so very similar kind of specs there. Every stream is different. So how the stream approaches the culvert from the upstream end, flows through the culvert and exits the culvert, um, all of those can make a big difference. And Annika, you probably really have seen that a lot, how um, a road that's not aligned very well or easy to, to um, reconstruct with a new structure can make for more expensive barrier or a lot more engineering is needed to make sure that that new structure will be there in the face of climate change and increasing storm intensity and things like that. So really, it's, each site is different. It is worth investing in some really good analysis and some really good engineering. And then ultimately, when we're constructing, having good engineered plans and a good contractor that can actually construct and implement the plans on site. That, that's kind of the ultimate rubber to road that's the most important is when we walk away from a completed project that we do have a good structure that will be resilient in the face of climate change or any infrastructure challenges and um, it will last, you know, and the stream can actually do what the stream is meant to do. We're really trying to restore natural stream processes when we're doing these barrier correction projects. To build on what Luke said just a little bit, there's a lot of kind of field considerations and constraints that we're faced with, but we were a bit surprised when we were doing the initial work of trying to put together these barrier data sets that had been managed by different types of ownership uh, to learn that not all of even state land managers are using the same stream layer uh, in, uh, as part of their databases, right? So when we tried to combine those in a GIS format, it was tremendously difficult. So that's why, you know, some members of our work group are working at that state policy level to try to change that so that across the state, our barriers can be compared in a more apples to apples uh, format. And, you know, additionally, the funding component is, is a big challenge that I think all folks that are doing fish passage projects are faced with. And especially in a place like the Olympic Peninsula where, uh, you know, large majority of our lands are under federal land ownership, Getting federal funding for our federal partners to address uh, this work is is challenging. So again, that's why we've got folks on our working group tasked with kind of 
leading the charge in advocating for additional federal funding to come to Olympic National Park and Olympic National Forest so that, uh, you know, our federal land partners can can be equally participating in the process. Can one of you tell me about what specific grants you're applying for? Yeah, so, you know, the campaign uh, initially received funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and that's kind of what kickstarted our our field reconnaissance efforts. Uh, And then it's really been supplemented by the private funding sector that uh, entities, you know, like Trout Unlimited and Wild Salmon Center, uh, you know, our organizations uh, do really great job at, you know, fundraising on the private side of things. But we had to think kind of long-term to to strategically lay out a plan for both implementation capacity and funding capacity. And uh, the state, as I'm sure you know, operates on a biennial funding cycle for many of its appropriations. Uh, And one program that we are interested in trying to tap into is the Brian Abbott Fish Burial Removal Board uh, that the legislature created a couple of years ago. So, you know, we've been thinking about how to strategically prepare the campaign so that we could have projects that both met the requirements of that funding source, but also fit kind of on that time cycle so that we could have project applications submitted at an appropriate time. Another state funding source that is somewhat unique to the Washington Coast is the Washington Coast Restoration and Resiliency Initiative. And that is a funding source that uh, was advocated for by project sponsors on the peninsula, and the legislature uh, ended up developing it, uh, and its first funding year was in 2011. And uh, it's specifically for large-scale restoration projects that occur along the Washington coast. So uh, we're hoping to potentially include some of these um, barrier projects in that funding source as well. Great. Thank you. Mara, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges and importance of ongoing monitoring and analysis? Yeah, sure. Um, So yeah, I've been involved with sort of the salmon recovery monitoring uh, interface for a number of years now. Um, And I would, would say that because of that and because of monitoring data that have been collected where it has been collected that we we know that some of the most immediate responses from salmon and steelhead populations happen when you remove fish passage barriers um, as compared to other types of habitat restoration work Um, and the monitoring data have been really important in terms of being able to tell us this information so i can't stress enough that where where a um some aspects of monitoring can be set up to track projects, very important um, in validating the, the, uh, the benefits of a project. Um, we use ongoing salmon steelhead monitoring information when we're planning projects. So the spawner survey uh, data that are collected by the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the tribes in each of these uh, basins, um, those data are extremely helpful because they tell us something about whether we know that fish are using the stream or using the stream just downstream of the barrier so that you open the barrier, there's gonna be fish there to, to come home, right? Um, they've already kind of found that area and, and it gives us a little bit more certainty um, about the benefits of the project. So. That existing monitoring um, and uh, has been very helpful and uh, important 
to prioritizing the, the fish passage projects and making some decisions there. Um, at the same time, it's going to be very important to know how the fish respond, make, making sure that um, fish are actually able to get up and through the, the um, corrected barriers, making sure that over time that the, the repaired, the reconnected habitat stays connected, um, doesn't become an, another barrier <laughs> into the future. Um, and so having a, a plan where, where a subset of these sites are continually visited over time and finding ways to sort of leverage existing effort where people are currently doing monitoring or where we can supplement monitoring to identify um, the, the, that these sites remain reconnected habitat into the future, that's going to be really an important part of the of the program. Um, it also will help us adaptively manage our work over time. If uh, replace a barrier and, you know, we have a problem, we learn from that, right? And, mm -hmm. and we don't make the same mistake next time. And that's, that's really important uh, part of doing this in an effective way. Do they have funding available for monitoring specifically? Monitoring data is, or monitoring funding is very difficult to identify and, and certainly does not come with these restoration uh, grants from the, the, organ the grant programs that, that Jess is mentioning. So that's where we're trying to leverage existing efforts, uh, work with the folks that, for example, are already doing stream surveys to, to um, look at, at uh, salmon and steelhead spawning. I'm really trying to uh, leverage the work that is already happening and then look at ways that we might complement that with some um, additional monitoring effort. But we, the sources of funding for monitoring are, are extremely limited. So Luke, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how people can get more involved. Annika, thank you. That's a great question. And um, I'll do my best to answer from my perspective. But I, I would be interested to hear what Mara and Jess have to say as well, because um, there's certainly opportunities. I would say um, for landowners out there, you know, let's just say a private landowner, if you have road stream crossings on your property, um, you can contact Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and they could assess that for you if they haven't done it recently. Or you could also um, contact any kind of local salmon recovery organization. Um, the regional fishery enhancement groups, they are spread throughout the state. That's one resource you could talk to. Um, certainly any of us um, you could talk to if it's in our region. We do have the ability to go and basically survey road stream crossing structures like culverts to see if there are barriers. So I guess right up front, um, identifying previously unidentified or undocumented barriers is a great thing. And there's a lot of landscape out there. So that's one thing that could be done for landowners. Another thing is to go ahead and um, maybe we can put it in the show notes, Annika, but look at the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife Barrier Database map. It's a web map application. So you can go online and look at it. And if you know a particular area, again, whether it's your property, but maybe you're an angler and you've gotten to know a certain stream, um, look at that stream on this barrier database map and click around. You'll see little dots or bubbles where there's potential barriers. And um, really those folks that get to know these watersheds can be really helpful in providing some feedback. There's just so many structures out there 
um, that it's really hard for for all of us working toward it to really um, get it on the map, if you will. Um, another thing too, uh, particularly for Trout Unlimited, Trout Unlimited has kind of a range of, of participants. We have grassroots chapters spread throughout the country, um, but each active state within Trout Unlimited has a Washington or a state council. So that we do have a Washington State Council, Trout Unlimited, and I've been working with them a bit to build a barrier assessment team. We call it the BAT team. And after all of the work that we've been doing on the OP with these partners, um, the Washington Council of Trout Unlimited has gotten the good graces from the Department of Fish and Wildlife to train our volunteers and members to assess these barriers. So we now have about 20, we're almost 30 now, about 30 trained volunteers that can go to a particular culvert or barrier, potential barrier, and survey that. Um, they're spread across the state, but that's another way to get involved is, um, you know, if you are a TU member, you could get some training to actually assess barriers on streams that you may know about. Um, and I'd say last is become informed and talk to your neighbors and talk to your friends about the importance of correcting these barriers and, and reconnecting these watersheds to their cold water connection. Um, and just that kind of awareness really helps a lot. Um, and I, I really love to give a plug to Wild Salmon Center's film, Cold Water Connection. Um, it's a fairly short film, but boy, does it good, do a good job to explain how important it is what we're trying to do here. Great. In the show notes, I'll include information. Does the BAT, BAT team have a web page? Yeah, they do. I can send that to you. Okay, great. And then I have the I've included the database for barriers in another podcast, but I will post it again because it's very important and useful to look at. I think it's also important to to encourage folks to advocate for the funding uh, of this type of work, right? So they can actively participate in the state legislative process or with our federal congressional offices on the importance of salmon and steelhead and you know the habitat that they re rely on, and that helps the rest of us when we make our funding pleas to those various state and federal organizations. Um, and additionally, you know, one example, let's say monitoring, uh, for example, any funding to contribute to campaign monitoring thus far has largely come from private donors. So if folks are interested in contributing directly to this campaign, they can either do so via Wild Salmon Center or the Co-Salmon Foundation. Um, and and put those dollars. We'll put those dollars to work, uh, either removing barriers or, or monitoring the work that that we've done. That's a great point, Jeff. Thanks for bringing that up. Mara, did you want to add anything to that? Um, I had one more thought to add there, um, which was that, um, and it relates. It's, it relates to being involved, but it also get relates back to your question about monitoring, which is that. I find that very often, um, you know, the people who live on these streams have a lot of information about the fish that come home to their backyards, and they see the fish there. They know how the populations have changed over time, and and that information, as we are uh, looking at culvert fish barriers as potential projects for funding, information that the landowners have about the way in which salmon uh, use the streams um, in, or just confirmation that salmon are using the streams is, is extremely valuable um, as part of the whole package of putting together the justification about why a particular site should be you know, at the top of the 
the priority list of a, a competitive grant round. Um, and so that's a, another uh, piece of information that uh, people, you know, your, your citizen landowner on the landscape hold that become an important piece of the overall um, work here. That's great. Yeah, that's a very important piece. So I was wondering if each of you could tell me a little bit about what you're most hopeful about in upcoming years. I'll start with Jess. You know, I think in coming years, the campaign is really going to see a lot of dirt movement and metal ripped out of the ground, so to speak. And I'm really excited to, uh, you know, now that I work more in policy, I spend way too much time in my dress shoes and not enough time in uh, a dry suit with a snorkel and mask on. So I'm really hoping to be able to don a snorkel and mask uh, in some coming seasons and to see, you know, the kind of the first fish use at some of our corrected sites. Luke. What about you? I will take this opportunity to really give kudos to Wild Salmon Center and the Coast Salmon Partnership slash Coast Salmon Foundation. They have been a real driving force to get this work group pulled together to really get the stakeholders, whether it be practitioners or and or the landowners, um, to the table to really done before on the Olympic Peninsula, particularly the West Side Olympic Peninsula. Um, this phase two that Mara and Jess have explained is really catapulting us into the future. And it's going to increase the scale and the pace of how we're correcting these barriers. And there's a lot more people than we have on the call today that are diligently working to do that. So it's kind of a similar answer, but I am very excited to see how this is growing. And um, I think just a couple years from now, um, we're going to have made great progress, and in that kind of 10-year time frame, I think we'll all be pretty darn proud that we did it proactively, um, we did it for the right reasons, and it wasn't easy. So I, I really want to say uh, kudos to, to these partners and those that aren't here as well, that it does take um, really a full team and not just an organization or two to pull this off. Mara. I would probably answer your question in uh, in two ways. Um, you know, making Olympic Peninsula, Western Olympic Peninsula, really, uh, you know, precious place for for salmon and steelhead, and and one that we want to see thriving, and and one that is struggling currently. I think really making a difference there, and seeing that we're making a difference, uh, seeing fish coming back to use open habitat, um, that provides me a huge, a huge amount of hope um, that, that a difference can be made. The other part of that though, Annika, that I love is seeing people coming together to make this happen. Um, and we are, in addition to our organizations, uh, working with uh, tribes and counties and federal and state and really asking the collective group of people who can make a difference to kind of join join in this effort and help by bringing their skills and their expertise to the work that gives me a lot of hope to see people working together to see people rallying around something that we care so much about um, and that, um, that's a really good thing. Hey, thank you. So 
But you all have provided so much great information about the cold water connection. And I just wanted to give you all the opportunity if there's anything else you want to add. Yeah, no, I, you know, I think the other partners have covered it really well in that not, you know, we can't push this boulder up the hill alone, but together we can really make a big difference and we're, we're out there getting to work. And I think that that's the most important, important thing that we can think of and, and do uh, right now, you know, especially when we think about the changing climate and what the, the fish are facing and just our, our ability to get them back home so that they can begin to acclimatize to these changing conditions maybe exactly what they need at this point in time. Mara? Um, I think we've covered a lot of topics. I don't have anything um, much additional there. I, I do appreciate, Annika, just the time to um, talk with you and uh, about the work that we're doing. Um, hopefully opportunity to share with folks in a little broader audience um, what we're hoping to accomplish. So um, I think that's all I would add. Thanks. Luke? Hi, Annika, thanks. I don't really have much else to add. Um, I think I think Mara and Jess covered it. Just, I'd say, get outside. Um, <laughs> whether you're gonna go look for fish barriers or not, it's not been an easy um, time as of recent. And those that are able and willing, just, just get outside and good for all of us. Thank you so much for joining me today. I just would like to end by expressing my deepest respect and gratitude to the many indigenous peoples and tribal nations in the Salish Sea region for their enduring care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review and tell a friend. Have a great day.